beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you for tuning in again. We always appreciate your support. It means a lot to us. And, you know, I, I can only assume it means a lot to the people who you're listening to, just because they get to share something that's true to them and something that they care about. Either it's their work or uh, their loved one. And someone's listening. I think that's an amazing part of this, uh, of having a podcast. So thank you for tuning in. If you're new to this show, thank you for, you know, trying us out. And if you love Grief Dreams, always go back and check out sort of the uh, Grief Dream recap episodes. Those were just like have cuts of powerful uh, grief dreams that people have shared so far on the podcast. So today we have, oh, I should actually mention who I am. If you're new, <laughs> I am Joshua Black. I'm the host today. I'm doing the research at Brock University uh, right now. And our co-host, neither of them could be here today. So it's just me going solo. So we have a great guest. I can't wait to talk to, can't wait to talk to her. So today we have Barbara Morningstar. Uh, who began serving in the hospice field over 20 years ago. During that time, she worked on staff at three different hospice societies within the province of British Columbia. The most notable was the hospice society where she held the position and program director for 12 and a half years. That's surely a long time. Well, there, Barbara oversaw their palliative and bereavement programs, counseling staff, and volunteer programs. Over her many years in the hospice field, Barbara has, has supported thousands of people during their tender life transition. She founded In Autumn's Cocoon Education in the fall of 2017, which educates on end-of-life care and in the form of talks, workshops, and writing. And she recently just published a book titled Honoring the Mystery, Uplifting Insights from the Language, Visions, and Dreams of the Dying. So Barbara, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be able to chat with you again. When I was down in BC and did the talk, we had the uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you there, and we had a nice little chat in Starbucks. And I remembered, or you brought up again, that you actually helped out, and we connected actually when I did my master's program. So that was like seven, eight years ago. Um, so it's amazing how like we're still in contact, and I look forward to you know furthering the discussion of what you're doing uh, on the podcast. Well, I applaud you, Josh. This is such an important topic. And when you're immersed in the hospice field, there's so many dreams that are shared. And it's important to acknowledge how powerful they are for the people going through these tender times. So I really appreciate and want to support how your research and how you highlight this topic can really help people integrate a loss and celebrate the love they've experienced with the individual who's passed. It's beautiful that you're like that, you know, because I contacted a lot of different hospices in my master's program and not all of them were as supportive as you. So, you know, there's something beautiful about your story and I look forward to hearing maybe sort of what changed you to to get there because not everyone's there. So uh, looking back, so what actually got you started in working in uh, hospice as a career? Ah, well, that's kind of layered and complicated. I think uh, when I was in my late teens, I actually had a very a, a girlfriend. It was a very tragic, sudden death, a loss that was really impactful, and it kind of threw me for a loop um, as to what to do next, where to go. You know, a, a lot when people have a death at any time in life, it can cause them to reevaluate um, where they're going. But this. Um, particular death was so challenging to integrate and when I and then as I went and it was in the spring of my final year of high school 
And when I went to go to university that fall, I was I was aiming to, well, initially I thought I would be a doctor for years and then the death happened and it just kind of made me question that. And then I thought marine biology. So my heart was grieving and I was in the middle of immersed in physics and chemistry and calculus and trying to, you know, try to put this all together. And I was out of sync with the academic world at the time and started asking deeper questions. About eight months after, well, I can't know, not the exact time, but it was less than a year for sure, eight months or so, um, eight to ten months, I had the most profound dream with her after she died, and it was lucid and real and had light and sound, and it had the tapestry and clarity of what how people often describe a near-death experience. Hmm. And after I came out of that, there was just this distinct feeling like she and I had actually spoken that the prospect of life after death didn't even seem like a question to me, but the depth to which that dream had transformed and uplifted my grief, especially not just the element of light and the depth of love in the conversation with her, but the sound, the sound in it sort of penetrated into my chest and my heart in a way that lifted the grief. I can't even describe how you know how that occurred and often that happens too. the language about trying to explain a more transcendent experience is hard because it's beyond a literal type of experience and so at a young age at 18 19 I just was like whoa okay what do I do with this and made a decision to follow my heart hold on I want to know what went on a whole journey of discovery yeah yeah, so I was gonna say, like, I want to know what this dream is before you move forward because uh, it seems to be a pinnacle part of this journey that you're on. So the dream began where I was in the upper part, the second floor of my parents' home, where the bedrooms are, and I was looking for a camera because I needed to do this project. And I came down the stairs, and as I came down the stairs, the vestibule, the front door of the home, the first thing I saw was a camera being held in a set of hands and I was drawn to the camera but then when I looked up there was my girlfriend in the most amazing um, presentation of how I've ever seen her never seen her like that before so she was all light in kind of a gown of white light and around her was this most magnificent aura that just emanated out like a rainbow of just beautiful colors, subtle but graceful colors, not overwhelming in sensation, but just really breathtaking, really. And she just beamed. She was all white light. And I just stopped and I looked at her and I couldn't believe she was there. And then I got all excited. I said, I can't believe you're here. What are you doing here? And I said, oh, my goodness, I've been looking everywhere for you. And she said, I know. That's why I've come. And I said, but are you okay? Is everything all right? I just wanted to talk to you. And she said, yes, I'm fine. And every time she spoke, it was so filled with love and so peaceful. And so she started to walk from the vestibule in the sort of pseudo home in the dream of what my parents' home was like through the living room. And I followed her like a crazy little kid going, so guy, hi, how are you? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, and had all these questions. And at one point she just turned around in the dream and put her hand out to me. And when I reached out to take her hand, the most amazing, I still remember the sensation because it was so real. It was like 
this wave of love, like a waterfall of love, came from her arm into my hand, down my arm, and cascaded all through my body in the most pure and loving way that it just completely calmed every erratic emotion I had, every question I had, every unbalanced thought, and I, I was just put right into this place of just total calm and peace, to the point it was almost disorienting. And then I just looked at her because I was a bit confused and yet it was stunning. And she just smiled and nodded. And then she took my hand and I just quietly followed her into the kind of dining room of the home, if you will. And she sat me down and pulled a chair in front of me and we started talking. And again, a little bit of the emotion came up, and I said, are you okay? Like, I was worried about you. I just want to know if you are okay. And she said, that's why I've come. I want you to know that I'm okay, and everything is fine. And I'm in the most beautiful place that I can't even begin to describe to you. And I've met amazing new friends, and there's nothing but love here. And you need to know that I'm okay. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yes. And I said, do you need me to come and be with you and she dramatically said no which I think is a good thing because you know I was confused and grieving and I think she would be concerned if I woke up and then decided not to be here she said no it was very clear and she said you'll be with me one day but not now and, and then she said something and she said we're not normally allowed to do this which I don't know what that meant but she said I've been given permission to come and talk to you which I've always questioned that part but and so we again began talking more deeply. And, she, and at one point, she could see I was really settled. And then she said, will you be okay? And I said, yes. And so at that point, though, there was a picture window in the dining room area, the pseudo dining room. And it burst open with this brilliant white light that came in. It was so bright in the white and the brightness that it was blinding. I could hardly look at it. But with the light came the sound that was like a deep electrical hum, and it pulsated in with the light. And I mean, the only way I can describe it, because it's beyond a description, literally, in a way, you have to kind of feel it. But it was like if you're listening to music and there's a deep bass sound and, and, the, and the speakers kind of vibrate. So it came in like this wave with the light in a pulsating kind of um, electrical, like, mm, like that kind of, I can't even describe it. And it pierced, the sound just kind of went, reached into my chest and kind of cradled my heart, but went through my heart and kind of shifted everything. And it, for lack of a better word, when I was looking at that and experiencing that on some deeper knowing level, it felt like God was calling her. And, you know, some people may use the word God or something divine or something bigger, but it was something bigger um, that was calling her back somehow. And then I turned back to her and I didn't say anything, but I knew she had to go. And again, she said, are you going to be okay? And I said, yes. And she said, no, that I am fine. You know, so like she just reiterated how good she was. And then, I just woke up and I was like laying in bed, kind of like people probably have a near-death experience, kind of went, whoa, like what was that? But, it, but I was laying in bed, it was so powerful and so lucid 
that I couldn't move. I just had to lay in bed for a while because it was transformative. And it was a beautiful sunny morning when I woke up. And I didn't want to leave the experience. I also didn't want to move or get out of bed because the love that was involved in that was so rich and so transformative that I didn't want to leave it. I wanted to stay in it. And for me, and I'm saying for me because it's different for everyone, there was a deep knowing of life after death or the prospect of life after death after. For me, it felt like a knowing and that she was absolutely okay and that she had come to let me know that because of how much I was struggling. And so then I went on from there. The powerful part about that is it did shift my grief. It did not take my grief away completely, obviously. I mean, this was a hard loss at a young age, but it really shifted it dramatically for me to go forward and hold it differently. And, um, and I've often looked back on that, and I'd done some, tried to do some counseling and grief counseling, but no grief counselor touched how that dream changed and shifted how I held that death. But it also caused me to start searching at a very young age for the deeper questions of mystery and of life. And I just started delving into everything I could get my hands on to try and learn how to hold this and work with it. So it was rich. And I would say that probably was the journey of starting to move towards hospice. And I have a rich, I'm quite sensitive, so I have a rich dream life. I've kept dream journals for over 30 years and see the dimensions and different style of dreams. Some are more subconscious, some are transcendent. I mean, it's rich when you start documenting them. Um, and I've had phenomenally interesting orchestrated moments to get me places or dreams have sort of guided me. So one event after the other ended up leading me into the hospice field, and I ended up meeting someone years later that was sort of mentored me into it. But it wasn't something I picked; it kind of picked me. And then, mm -hmm. and I resisted it at first, but then I was, as I moved more deeply into it, I thought, oh, this this actually is in perfect alignment with who I am. And really, it's a calling for me. It just has been so beautiful and rich and how I've been changed and been able to serve others as a result. But that dream was a pivotal point in looking for deeper answers to life's more mysterious questions, if you will. Wow, that's pretty cool. Wow, it's a, such a beautiful image. And so again, and it was lengthy because you don't really see, you know, I see so many dreams and they're very short. That's a very lengthy dream with a lot of conversation. So uh, that's very unique. So, which is, you know, I guess you needed that at that time. And I guess she had permission. <laughs> to Whatever. Talk, yeah. To talk interesting. Um, but yeah, that's amazing how that helped you, you know, sort of, you know, work on your loss and then helped you be more open to some of these experiences. And so when you got into the hospice, how long was it before you started understanding that the dying were having these experiences too? Um, because of my own journey around that, I was open to it from the beginning and would start, at, but then became even more fascinated when I was actually sitting with some, so I had a, a deeper curiosity about it. So I would tend to ask mm. questions because I would say, you know, have you had any unique dreams lately or, um, can you tell me what the experience is like for you? And then just wait to see what they say. Now, not a lot of patients or people that are bereaved keep these experiences very guarded because they're afraid they're going to be judged. 
especially yeah. in an academic or medical arena, because then they're afraid the doctor's going to think it's a medication or something, which it can, you can have absolutely delusion or hallucination from medications. Um, but there's oftentimes breaking through very lucid and clear experiences that are missed because, you know, we're not always being open to the other prospect of this mysterious dimension at play. So I think I went into it with a curiosity because I was fascinating because I knew I was going to be with people on the threshold of this change and they were going to be teaching me. One of my uh, palliative doc, I, have, I, I just love to bits. He's so open to this. Is Sikh background, and he said to me once, you know, Barb, the patients are my gurus, and I thought that was a beautiful way to hold it, um, because they're in a transition that I'm not in the middle of, and how do I learn from them, right? Mm -hmm. So both on, because of my dreams and because of other unique experiences I've had in my life, I was very comfortable with that conversation and curious uh, to learn from people who were dying or family who were bereaved yeah that's that's very interesting because you know some people aren't as open so did you as sort of the uh the head person there did you implement training for the volunteers on how to sit with sort of the mystery absolutely you did. wow wow <laughs> that would have been they'd get, they'd get it in medical realms <laughs> when when there would be a unique kind of thing that didn't quite sound like it was the med, you know, I'd say, did you ask them deeper? You know, I'd say the doctors and the team, okay, that it could be the medication, but did anyone ask that person a, a deeper question around that? Did you ask them to share what's happening with them and how real it was for them? You know, um, in the book, there's a beautiful, in the first chapter, there's a story that I share, and I'd love to share it here if you're open to it, that involves a child. So the one story I want to share that's stunning came from a nurse at a hospice in uh, in Alberta, and uh, the husband was lovely. He he, I actually talked to the husband about sharing the story in the book, and he was good with it. So the nurse uh, was telling me about this young patient who was in her 40s and sadly dying of cancer, and um, was. Uh, you know, just sort of there one day and the nurse came in and was starting to work with the medications and talk to her and the, and the patient was very lucid, very grounded, and all of a sudden started seeing all these children in the room running around and was so excited about the children going, wow, look at those children, look at how beautiful they are and started talking about it. and then said to the nurse, who are those children? And the nurse said, admitted she did not see the children. But luckily, was a wonderful palliative nurse, and often the palliative nurses know this more, and so do the, the hospice volunteers because they're around it and hear it and see it a lot. And so instead of denying the patient's experience fully, she did admit she couldn't see them. She asked questions and, and asked her about to share what the children were like. So they had that conversation, and then it kind of passed once they completed it. And then the next day, the same thing, different nurse, Patient's there, sees all the children, and is talking about the children, and nurse, again, can't see them, but is so honoring and so respectful of how rich and real this is for the patient that she opens the conversation and discussion. Mm -hmm. So it happened for two or three days in a row. And then finally, the patient, I think, backed off a bit because she was a little concerned that they might think she was a bit crazy because they were all admitting they couldn't see the kids. 
But the beautiful part of this story was a number of days later, she has an eight-year-old daughter, and the eight-year-old daughter came for a visit, and she was in her mom's room, and she hopped on the bed and was cuddling with her mom, and then looked over towards the window and said, Mom, who are all those children? So now we have a unique event, and Raymond Moody's doing more studies on this, the fellow who did a lot of research on near-death experiences. He's doing more research on shared death experience where the person who's not dying, the person at the bedside, is actually getting swept into the experience of the dying person. A whole different level of exploration. So the child looks over at the window and says, Mom, who are all those children? And the mom looks at her little one and she says, You can see them? And she said, Yes. Now, the little one couldn't just see them, she could hear them. So the mom said to her, ask them who they are. So the child looks over at the window and asks the children who they are, and she looks back at her mom and she says, Mom, they say they're my siblings, but I don't know what that means. And so her mother said, well, siblings means your brother and sisters, which was interesting because she was an only child. So the mother then said, ask them what their names are. So the little one looks back over to the window and she starts asking the children, because there's a number of children, and she says the name of each child. Well, of course, the child didn't know this, but the mother had had a series of miscarriages. And I did talk to the husband about this, and apparently she had quite a few. And she had a series of miscarriages, and quietly, she hadn't even told her husband this, so it was quite interesting for him to hear the depth of the story as it was unfolding, and later, too, in her, to deal with her own grief, because losing these children was so painful to her heart, she actually named each child to acknowledge the connection as a mother. And as the child was looking at each little one on the windowsill, she said the names, and they actually matched the names that the mother had given the baby she had lost. And so it just filled her up because the child, in her innocence, validated something deeper that she was experiencing, so it was rich. But it also was healing for her in her dying, and it also made her feel like she wasn't alone. And so I talked to one of the nurses who sat with her after, who was not there when the event occurred. Other people were around her. And asked the patient, and the patient was just so deeply moved by that confirmation and the event, and it just was healing, but also made her look forward to connecting with the children in her own passing. So that one's a little more dramatic, but there are more studies being done now of shared death um, visions and experiences that's not just the dying person saying they're seeing something. So that's interesting too when that kind of thing occurs. Wow, that's crazy. That's uh, that's wild how you could hear about that experience, you know, and for the the parents to sit in that mystery, right? And that's what you're saying. That's so cool. Yeah, there's a. Uh, I think you get a lot from these experiences that you know, just um, everyday sort of textbooks and stuff don't really um, really look at just because you have to hear about them right like it's it's probably a little harder to do studies on them um because you got to find them right like they're not like shared experiences isn't a probably not a common thing Um, not as common no but you know it's interesting that it's being highlighted a bit more because often it's the experiences 
the near-death experience or the experience of the person who's dying can be, is reduced to medication or delusion and and then not held in the same light, right? And, and as I said, medications can cause challenges, but they can also, in, in the reflection, they can also be metaphoric of something that the person's working through, right? Um, but often the ones we're talking about come from somebody at a very lucid state, um, where they're clear. I mean, I had another one where, you know, a patient was hearing music and, and it, and it was filling the room. And at first, when I talked to the nurses about it, you know, they thought, oh, she's just hallucinating or, you know, and I said, well, wait a minute, did anybody ask her about the music? And they said, no. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's the meds, but has anyone sat with her and really had a deeper discussion about it? And so I took the, and so we, and they were wonderful. They all agreed that maybe they should have done that a little bit more. Um, and went in, and I ended up in the room later with her and asked her about it. And she said it was a sound and a qual. she was Christian. It was a sound and a quality that had such a celestial tone and, and, texture in hymns that she'd known from her childhood, but she could not describe them because the, the tone and quality of it was beyond anything that she'd ever experienced. And when people were in the room, it was like the radio turned down. And when people left the room, it filled the room. And that sound brought her comfort. So who am I to take that away from her? It was rich and beautiful for her, even if I couldn't hear it, and real to her. And, and a gift in a way. And she talked about hearing that sound, that music, until she died. So, wow. But, but I do want to say, too, because we have to be careful here, these are a little bit more dramatic examples. And you and I have talked about, some people say, I didn't get a dream at all. And then they're heartbroken because they want to have an experience like this. And the truth is, a lot more of these experiences come in subtle ways. And even to be open to it, it's in the subtle that it opens up. You know, I found it interesting at the Near-Death Experience Conference, at the International Association of Near-Death Studies, I just went to in Bellevue, and the Department of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia has done a lot of research on near-death experiences and deathbed visions, and I was actually quite impressed with the extent to which they've been doing research on this. But in the near-death experience, the brain activity stops, and it's in the silencing of the brain activity and the thoughts that that is that bigger thing, consciousness, the mind, whatever you want to call that bigger thing, is almost gets to go through the gateway of where that brain was and the thoughts were kind of imposing or blocking it from coming in. It's when the, when the mind silences and the thoughts silences or the brain stops, it's higher activity that those bigger experiences come through. The same, and so they've been doing more studies on meditation and contemplation because you don't want to have to have the near-death experience to do this. Um, so they're, they're doing more studies on, on what happens to brain activity when people go into deep meditation. And it parallels that. It, it silences, it calms, and it's like that, that gate that's holding this bigger thing back kind of settles down and opens up to something broader. But it comes in the subtle and in the quiet and in the simpler rhythms. And so that's why meditation or contemplation um, can open people up to this. And, you know, I love nature. I go out in nature all the time. It's, it's a solace 
for me. It's such a natural rhythm. I don't watch the news. I, haven't, I hate watching the news. I think part of it is because I've been in hospice for years and years. And when you're around death and dying and the pain and deep emotion of that, the last thing you want to do is come home and watch the news. And so everybody else does. So if there's some big event, they'll tell me about it. <laughs> so I don't miss out on anything. And I don't watch a lot of TV or movies. I'll watch a movie if I'm drawn to it. But I use the internet for research and emailing and all those things. But I prefer to be in a quieter rhythm. And, you know, I'm questioning now in my own life if that's part of the reason why I have been blessed with some of these richer dreams and experiences because I do find that they come in more silent ways. And so, you know, when you're at the bedside with someone dying, it is so authentic. All the outer stuff is stripped away. There's no social masks anymore. The physical body has changed. You are heart to heart and soul to soul in the most authentic, vulnerable and open place and if you bring any stuff in any of your masks and stuff in on a social level they'll sniff you out and tell you to get lost pretty fast I am a natural dreamer and it's active for me and it's a portal to a fascinating world for me and it's helped me work with the dying and wired me to work with the dying and the breeze and help me in my own life but not everybody's a dreamer. So how does life speak to you? Some people will get an experience through the metaphor of a butterfly that's the symbol of somebody that they love landing on their shoulder. In the in the movie um, uh, about the doctor who uh, oh, what's the name of the doctor who does all the humor with the kids, Patch Adams, and the young girl that he uh, had mentored was killed and he was devastated and didn't know if he could go on. There's a moment where he's up on the cliff in his grief and a butterfly was a strong symbol for her of change and transformation and a butterfly comes and lands on him and he feels in the metaphor of that butterfly her presence and it encourages them to go forward and continue his work. And often we hear those kind of things more. Or the other thing, um, you know, I have kept dream journals for over 30 years. And I went, and when my husband died, my husband died in 2010. We were married for 20 years. We had such a strong bond between us that I was overwhelmed at the number of dreams and unique experiences I was having with him after he died. So I kept a separate journal in the year after he died. And again, amazing. Um, but the other part that I tell people is you may not be the dreamer in the family. It may not come to you as a dream itself, but stay open to everything else, how life speaks to you in the metaphors, how the day presents something to sort of wrap around and uplift your heart. But the other thing is, if someone else gives you a dream, then receive it as a gift. So in my journal, I not just had my own reflections and the things that happened in my life and the dreams that he came to me with, which were layered and unique and interesting in so many ways. But often at a time where I was struggling, a friend would come up and say, Barb, I need to tell you this dream I just had with, with Gord, who was my husband at the time. And they would give me this beautiful gift uh, of their dream that spoke to me. You know, and I thought about it afterwards, if I was the kind of person that never got any dreams at all, 
and I just had a separate journal and started documenting the times other people came up and gave me their dream, oh my goodness, how beautiful. Because I had read through and had forgotten some of the dreams these people shared, and they were they were so loving. And they were just timed in the right way to come and help me, right? So it doesn't have to be in your own personal dream. Life will speak to you if you're open in so many ways. But we don't often pay attention because we're distracted by all these other things right now. We miss the subtle, right? Yeah, it's amazing how... So I'm quite passionate. Sorry, I mean, yeah, yeah. not too much. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how you're able to notice this and also talk about it with those in the field because it wasn't something that they're being trained on. So it's amazing you have the passion for it. You could see it all. And so why write the book? So you wrote this book all about this topic. And so what was like, I'm guessing you, you finished your your 20 years right in the field. Is that why? Because time just opened up. So you decided to write it? Um, actually, no, I started, I tried to get a pub- publisher for initial draft of the book in 98, had a New York literary agent and got 21 rejections on the book. Um, and it was a time when Tuesdays with Maury and the grace of dying had come out. And so, you know, it was already flooded then. So, and I tried one other time, this is a self-published book, but I've been blessed to have some deeply noted international palliative doctors who are pioneers give endorsements to the book to support it. Um, I think it's timing. You know, back then I was newer in the field and I hadn't been through the death of my husband. I'm, I've matured into life in a different way and have much more experience under my belt around being with people and people of all different faiths from you know, deep religious faith to spirituality to people who are atheists. And I share a story about a beautiful moment I had with an atheist who celebrated nature. We celebrated together before he died. Hmm. So I think it's just timing. But I, but when I first did this, and I talk about it in the intro of the book, it just became a passion because I clearly felt they were missing huge pieces that could help the dying patient transition more and help the family transition and the same in grief. And these are, they're not as concrete in a way, but they're rich in what they bring, just like my dream. And so I just could not sit there in medical rounds and not say something. They all know that about me. Anyone who's been around me the last while knows, okay, Barbara's going to bring this up. Um, and I, and I really worked hard to try and find a parameter and a framework that we could be grounded in. It wasn't a flighty thing we we're going off on. We're all going to be together and be grounded in this observation of what these adventures into this unknown realm could teach us. And so the first time I actually was asked, I did a poster presentation at one um, event UBC, University of British Columbia put on on health and spirituality. It was well received. And then I put that same abstract in for a poster presentation, I think it was 2007, and a talk at a, at a British Columbia conference on hospice palliative care. And they actually accepted the poster presentation and put it outside the room where the doctors, the palliative docs were doing a week-long series of talks on prognostication. And they were, while they were sipping their coffee, they were looking at the poster. And when I would go up there, they quietly tell me a story. But the bigger one was when I went went to do the workshop itself, and I was not a keynote speaker, and the average workshop sort of garnered maybe 15 to 30 people. 150 people 
tried to sign up for this workshop. It was so well received that they actually were gracious. They didn't have to do this. They put me in the ballroom and gave me the full ballroom to talk about this. And it was doctors and nurses and hospice volunteers and medical staff and spiritual care. And at one point, I asked everyone to turn to their neighbor and share their story. Well, the room came alive with storytelling. It was so rich. And then I had people stand up and share. And the stories were stunning. And at the end, I had so many people came up and thanked me for my courage, but thanked me for doing this because it helped all of them. And so from that point on, I just thought, I cannot step down, stand down on this. I need to talk about it. Um, and actually, in 1993, I met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at a conference I went to and ended up talking to her about children and light and sound and about my passion for this and too much to get into the full conversation or what happened. But in a way, it was a quiet blessing because she was a pioneer in the field and she encouraged me not to stand down on this, that it was important and to follow it. And I look back on that now as almost like, you know, a blessing from a rich researcher and pioneer in the field. And the response to this book has just been so moving and so... Um, yeah, I'm even getting emotional sort of thinking about it because, you know, people who haven't shared their stories, it's acknowledged them and um, just how people have told me it, it, it's helping them, men and women alike, you know, and, and I've designed the book specifically to be simple. It's only 100 pages. It's just stories. Because when people are in deep grief or overwhelmed with emotion, they cannot read a lot. That's been proven. So it's meant to be simple to speak to the heart. And so the whole purpose of the book is to help us open this dialogue so we're not missing richer parts of the experience, but also to help people have an easier journey through a tough time. That's amazing. You know, I, uh, I like that. And, and so I like that you're, you're so passionate about it and it comes through that. And I hope so that book does continue to you know, open people's eyes um, about the process and about sort of the process they may have saw because not everyone um, gets a chance to sort of sit with their dying. It sometimes is very sudden. So uh, do you talk about um, anything about uh, the bereaved in your book or is it specifically just the dying? No, it's both. Um, oh, okay. It's a very personal book for me too because as I said, I lo- not only have I been in the field professionally, but I lost my own husband to cancer um, in 2008, we'd been married 20 years. Um, so I actually talk about experiences around his death and then how I dealt with my own grief and some stunning things that happened to help me in my grief while I felt his presence and, um, it just helped me traverse and integrate the loss. So that, so that's the uniqueness of it too. It weaves in the dying side and then it weaves over to Mm being you know grieving a loss and how do you integrate that and that is unique to each person but the stories are encouraging the reader to stay open to how that unique experience will speak to them or take them on their own journey of integration as you said it's honoring the mystery right it's honoring the mystery it's tile the book so it's it's uh, pretty cool and so let's um i'm i want to talk about the uh the death of your husband what was that like for you um, and what kind of 
what was that process like knowing everything you knew going forward? One of the most challenging guests I've ever had to partner. Mm. Um, he actually had a unique situation where he had one sort of simple primary cancer for a number of years as a bladder cancer and then later was diagnosed with two other primary cancers which ended up integrating into the spine. It was crumbling and sort of impacting on the nervous uh, system within the spinal column. So you normally have one primary cancer that travels or metastasizes. He had three primary cancers and they were all reacting differently. So sadly, I just did a presentation to doctors at UBC um, who are specialists now taking a specialty for palliative medicine and I was talking about support of the caregiver. And I used the example of being with my husband and said to them, sadly, this will be an interesting case study for you two in pain management because this was not easy. Um, so I can't imagine that particular death without the background that I had. Mm. At the same time, you know, it's harder, obviously, because when it's somebody you love, you don't have the same detachment because your heart's wrapped in and connected to them. And yet, as hard as his death was, I also, on a much deeper level, and I talk about some of the experiences in the book, saw how what he had to go through broke him open to a deeper place of loving and authenticity that I'd never seen in him before, just before he passed. And because I partnered that and was willing to go deeply into that companioning with him, I was transformed too in a way that I hadn't been before. Um, but it took me a while to integrate that death because it, was, um, it wasn't easy. And palliative medicine is brilliant, by the way. Not enough people understand it. It is so amazing to have palliative teams around you. I know friends who are palliative docs, and if I were coming to end of life, which I will one day, I would want a palliative team around me because their pain management skills and skills to just companion people are, are stunning. His was unique. Um, and it was a little trickier than most, um, but both of us were changed because of it. And yes, hard, painful, um, but he was broken open to a different place of experiencing love and life, and so was I by partnering him. And as hard as it was, I, it was a gift in the end to make my life even richer going forward and to help in turn be able to serve and teach others too. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Did you, because like you sat with the dying for so so long, did you have, did he have any of these experiences? Um, or were you like waiting to talk about these experiences with him? Or was it just like not in your consciousness? Oh, we totally talked about oh. it. He was, he was completely open to it. Yes, completely open to it. He lost his first wife to cancer and he had two children in his first marriage and he'd lost a child to leukemia at seven and a half. So because of his own grief journey, he had started asking deeper questions um, of life before he and I got together. So he had a rich inner life too. And so we were very open with that and um, you know, definitely uh, explored that together. And there were times he had fear that came up that I wasn't expecting in him. And I had to sit with it and let him be in that and work with him on it, but more than anything, give him space with love to try and find his way through that. Um, 
can I, do we have time for me to share one beautiful experience at the end or are we coming to the end here? We're coming to the end, but Um, you can share one. Okay. So here's a dramatic thing that happened at the end. Um, Again, sorry, it's dramatic, but mine tend to be quite rich. So as there was two events that happened as he was dying. He's getting very weak. He had an epidural line, sadly, that was failing. You don't normally have to have an epidural line in the spine, but they were trying to do that for pain management. And someone brought a little bouquet of flowers with a a yellow rose in the center. And he became absolutely enamored with this yellow rose and and just could not stop talking about the rose. And I remember him having sort of this one event in his life It was almost like a spiritual rite of passage symbolic to him. And the yellow rose was a symbol of that. And so as I watched him with this one yellow rose, I was thinking, I need to go and buy him a bouquet of yellow roses. This is unbelievable. But then he got weaker and I couldn't. And I thought, well, okay, maybe it's just the one rose was exactly what it needed to be. The other interesting metaphor, I need to tell you this before the second experience, was When we were first together, we went on a trip through Oregon, and there's this one part on the Oregon coast that has all these waterfalls. In this moment, I can't remember the exact name of the main one, but it's a stunning waterfall, and we just fell in love with it. It was very symbolic of our initial days being together and of the depth of our love. Well, but a week before he died, I needed a bit of a break, and I went down to the States to a little conference, and it turned out the conference was near where all those waterfalls were, which was fascinating because I had forgotten exactly where we'd seen that waterfall. So I took pictures and I brought it back and I tried to show it to him. You know, I showed it to him and he was crying because he wished he would be there, but it was symbolic of me going forward on my own. But at one point I was cuddled in the hospital bed with him and we put, I brought a little poster picture, of the tiny little poster Um, like postcard and put it on the bulletin board at the foot of the bed and we were in the room alone and I was cuddled in the hospital bed with him and I said I wish I could have a big picture a big picture of that waterfall because it's so symbolic of the love that you and I share and we were the only two in the room and then he fell asleep so his death was not easy but in the end he died very peacefully and he was actually in my arms when he died um, and it started to lightly snow just after he died, and I stayed with him. But as he had one of these infusion kind of things of medication, as he got closer to dying, the 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 machine started acting up. It's kind of beeping more. And I thought, what is that about? You know, like it was peaceful, but this little beepy thing happened. The nurse finally came in and turned it off. And then just after he died, people were sending out email you know, messages, and they all got one, and I got 40 emails with his name on it. So this is going to sound a little funny, but the day after he died, that those two things had happened, and I was really hurting because he was, he was not able to communicate for a week before he died. He was very cocooned in. And I remember sitting on the couch and saying to him, you're really upsetting me right now. I said, you know, stop playing with the electronics because it's always kind of a joke that, you know, spirits or soul or whatever play with electronics. I said, this is not spirituality 101. Stop playing with the electronics. I am really struggling here. I need you to come with a metaphor or something that tells me your heart's okay so that my heart can settle. And I was crying and talking to him and saying, I know you can hear me. And so you bring me something. 
So the next day the phone rings and it's a couple that I know, they're friends. And they said, we really would want to come by and have tea with you and see how you're doing and visit. Is it okay if we come? And I said, absolutely. So they came a little later that morning and I went to the door. And when I opened the door, the first thing I saw was my friend was holding this bouquet of yellow roses. And that just about did me in to begin with, like the wave of the love with the roses and the symbol was breathtaking. And that would have been enough. But then when we walked in and I sat down, they had a parcel. And they said, we have a gift for you and we need to give this to you. And I said, okay. And so they put it in front of me, it was wrapped. And when I pulled the wrapping paper back, it was this beautiful photograph of the waterfall, huge, framed, stunning of the waterfall that I had seen and said I wanted a big picture of. And I just started crying and I couldn't believe it. And I told them the story and they knew nothing about it. They knew I'd been down to that area, but they knew nothing about that. And my friend said it had started to snow and we were going to go downtown to get some Christmas presents, but we couldn't. And we got redirected to a mall we'd never been in. And as we were walking to the, through the mall, we went to go into this one art store. And as we were standing in the store, she said, I looked up and I saw this picture of the waterfall. And she said, Barb, it was so clear, like your husband, Gord, was standing next to me. And he said, you need to buy her this picture and you need to buy it now. And she said, so we bought it. Well, that made me cry even more. But it was so profound and so rich in the metaphor. And it felt like his love wrapped around me and said, honey, I know you're struggling, but I'm okay. And here are my expressions metaphorically of the love that I have for you and know I'm going to be all right. Wow. That's a, that's a wild story. <laughs> yeah. I imagine. I've so had a few, to... but that's yeah. why I find it so interesting, right? I it mean, is. Because... And, you know, and I don't think people maybe can grasp the significance of it because it's, it's meant for you. Um, but in right. that moment, it shifted you. And exactly. it brought you to a place that you're longing for. What's to know he's okay. And now you just have to worry about yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. And as I said, some of these are a little bit more vibrant or rich in their expression. And not everyone will have these. And that is the point of all of this too. Stay open to the uniqueness of each person, whether it's an atheist, or someone in deep faith or in spirituality, the experiences often come in the form that is designed for that individual, in the metaphors, in the life experience, in the symbols that are comfortable to them. Some subtle, some more dramatic, some through others when they're having a quiet moment, if we stay open to it. But more than anything, it's how it impacts the heart to help in integrating um, the loss or the or the you know the saying goodbye of someone we love yeah and i I just want to talk about dreams quickly uh when it comes to your your losses so you've you've lost your your girlfriend and also your husband since you kept the dream journal did you see any changes in the imagery like um as it went forward yeah it was interesting because i i kept that one journal for a year after and I did see some of the dreams in the beginning sort of struggling with, is he dead or is he alive? Or dealing with sort of the deeper emotional components of 
of the loss and his suffering, physical suffering. And then it started shifting to sort of lighter places and more comfortable places um, and then uplifted. And then as the year went on, you know, just watched my heart shift to an, an easier place of acceptance as well. Hmm. That's interesting. So that was, I actually reread the whole thing before doing this interview with you and I found it, and that was 10 years ago. So that's why journals are interesting too, because you look back and you, get to appreciate the journey in a different way had you not documented it yeah that's so true and i think you know a lot of people remember some of the more monumental dreams that they've had some of those big dreams but you're right like keeping a dream journal of even just of the uh when your deceased is in it you'll be able to see those changes and be able to remember those because you're not going to remember all your dreams um with them in it through your entire life so that's pretty cool you have that that's a really nice gift um that you've almost given and, yourself and can i just say one thing on that because i've done workshops on dreams too i remember people standing up saying but i don't have any dreams and so one person i was in a workshop with shared a beautiful thought around that she said every morning when you wake up capture anything that comes whether it's the impression of what the morning was like a subtle sort of insight that occurred um, upon waking or the truth of a, a more vibrant dream, write it down, write anything down. And she compared it to, she said, because you won't know how that will play out until later. And she compared it to Christopher Columbus or, or explorers on, on a journey. And she said, when Columbus was out in the ocean, he documented the events of every day. So he may get up and, the, and one day there's no land in sight, writes no land in sight. Next day wakes up, no land in sight, writes down no land in sight, just out at sea. And this goes on for days. Eventually they come to the land or the island that they're you know, aiming for or hoping to find. And even though it appears like that entry into the journal had no significance because they saw nothing on that day, when they actually come to the piece of land, they can look back and count that it took a hundred days for them to get there. Had they not documented that, they would have not even known what the journey involved. So I thought that was a beautiful metaphor because sometimes when you wake up and it seems like nothing is occurring or it's so subtle, you don't think you should write it down, write it down because later it may have a d deeper significance and meaning than you understand. Well, also, it can. But it's starting yeah. to do that, to have the discipline of that which most people don't. But if you start that discipline, it's amazing what it can start to reveal. And often yeah, you, it's the subtler moments in between that actually end up being richer in insight than some of the more dramatic experiences. Yeah. And so now we're just going to be wrapping up. Um, so if you could, as uh, um, today, if you could have a dream of the deceased, uh, what dream would you want to have? Okay. So now here we go to the other end, which some other people have experienced. My mother died of Alzheimer's last November, late in November, and it was a gradual letting go. And we all actually had rich experiences with her till the end because we worked with her metaphoric language as if it was real. Um, but I've not had a dream with her since she died. Hmm. Unlike with my husband, it was like over the top or other people. Um, with my mom, I haven't had one dream. And I respect that because I know there's a rhythm and a purpose for each expression after a death. 
but there's still a part of my heart that says, come on, mom, like, you know, how come you haven't come in and checked in and said hi? My dad, who's 96, has been having amazing experiences with her and recently seen her in a way that's so real, and he's getting more frail. We're wondering if he's getting ready to go, but I haven't had it. But just hearing his dreams has been food for me. Uh, but good. personally, I wish he'd come and just check in, but I haven't had that yet. So I wish if I could have a dream tonight, it would be with my mom. Oh, that's we cool. Yeah. And what would you want her to say? Just check in or what do you want to tell her? Oh, I just love to give her a hug and see her eyes and her face and just kind of anchor with her in a way that maybe wasn't in that sort of experience of a different languaging before she died. Even though our family, we all work together to engage in our dialogue in a different way. And even though people say you can't communicate with people with Alzheimer's, or you can, you just can't do it in a literal way. So we would pretend her language was real and it would be heart to heart and she would come alive and it was beautiful. But it would lo- I would love to anchor in her eyes and see her and just thank her for what she taught me while she was here and what she taught me in the journey through her Alzheimer's, too. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get a dream of her, and hopefully it's like that. That's That sounds like an amazing dream. <laughs> yeah. And thank so, you, Josh. Oh, no problem. So thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. Where can people find your book, and do you have any social media um, outlets people can um, follow you on? I'm just learning about social media, so I'm a little slow on the uptake on that. But my website, uh, if you go to my website... My, my business is In Autumn's Cocoon. It's a little bit of a mouthful. But if you go to inautumnscocoon.com, it shares a little bit more about some of the workshops I've offered, but it also uh, talks about the book and has a link to amazon.com. Amazon.com has the major editorial reviews and information of the book, but it's also on Amazon globally, too, if people want to buy it. Amazing. Um, get more information about it. That's great. It's got to feel really fulfilling for you to actually see it up there now and to realize that anyone in the world can, can buy it. So I think, you know, what a great journey you've been on and that you're sort of, you know, you're, you still get to have these moments, you know, like you've had such a fulfilling life, but you still get to have these sort of fun, exciting moments of doing new things. Exactly. Exactly. I'm grateful. But more than anything, I wrote the book. Hopefully they, people can feel my heart in the book heart to heart so that people can feel supported and it helps integrate and heal the loss of a loved one because it can be incredibly painful and yet we all experience it so how do we help each other right yeah that's that's my goal for the book that's great i think that's a great goal it's an amazing goal to have and we just need more and more people to continue to to sit in that mystery and to normalize the experience for all those around and that's, you know, that will allow people to just, you know, basically allow it to do what it's supposed to do. Because they're having these experiences for a reason. Just ask about them, you know? And that's really what it is. You're normalizing the experience. Some of them are going to be, like, really profound. Other ones, not so much. But you're still honoring sort of that aspect of them. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm glad we got to chat again. And I'm guessing we'll chat again next time I'm in BC. So just to wrap yeah, up. <laughs> just to wrap up now, uh, our stuff, if you want to check out more stuff about grief dreams just go to griefdreams.ca we have a bunch of information on there for you 
And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group um, in there. There's a ton of people who are sharing dreams and are supporting people through dreams. So if you have a dream yourself, feel free to share it in there. Also, uh, if you have Instagram or Twitter, at Grief Dreams. And as we like to end our whole podcast is with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.